Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more lights, and more love. Another incredible guest. We just find the most incredible people out there. We have another one. He's on the show. His name is Richard Al Hates. He's a best selling author. Master of four samurai arts and just an incredible human being. We're going to talk to him in just a second. But first, I need you to do something for me. Check out waveblock.com and there you will find EMF shielding stickers for your Apple iPhones and AirPods of various styles. It is well known that these devices that we use that are a part of our daily lives, these Apple iPhones, the Bluetooth AirPods, they emit EMF radiation that has been shown to be damaging to the human body. And children who are using these devices more than anyone, research on the impact of EMF radiation on children suggests that because children's brains are smaller and thinner than adult brains, they are believed to be much more absorbent. In fact, as much as three times more absorbent. This means for children, EMF exposure and risks are even higher. This company, WaveBlock, has created a product that protects you. These products protect you. You need to make sure that the radiation that is emitted from these devices that has been shown across the board to cause damage in various ways, including DNA issues, the covalent bonds, we talk about that, the lymph nodes, the Bluetooth headphones are right by the lymph nodes. You put these stickers on, they contain materials which push the radiation away from your body, but it does not block the functionality of these devices. So you benefit from the shielding, the safety, and it doesn't debilitate the device at all. These devices are here. We're dealing with it. We'll evolve past it. But until then, you need to protect yourself. If you know someone that has Apple products, the various iPhone styles, tell them about this, waveblock.com. And the thing is, if you go to that website, you'll see the five-star reviews. You will see the actual tests. You will see the reports that they post on the website detailing all of the research that they have done to show that these stickers, these adhesive stickers repel radiation away from you. So we need to be safe, people. And we have a 20% off discount code. So if you go to waveblock.com, you get 20% off your order if you put in the code MIDNIGHT, M-I-D-N-I-G-H-T. You put that code in, you get 20% off your order. No other podcast or anywhere where WaveBlock is advertising will give you 20% off. I believe in this because I have been talking about it personally for years. I think the Bluetooth headphones are terrible from a health standpoint. 
from a convenience standpoint, sure, they're great. But from a health standpoint, they are not helping us. So we need to protect ourselves. Go to waveblock.com. Use the code MIDNIGHT to get 20% off. So again, that is waveblock.com. Waveblock.com. And after that, go to bluecobracbd.com. That's bluecobracbd.com, and there you will find the highest quality CBD oil ever created on earth. I'm not even joking, people. This oil is unlike anything you will find on the market, period, in relation to CBD products. And the reason that is, is because the extraction method used to extract the CBD from the hemp is a proprietary method called the HIT extraction method. It was developed by a man that I know very well. His name's Howard Hitt, also known as Big H. And he developed something so magical and so special. I just personally can't, I keep trying to describe it every week. So I don't want to say I can't describe it. I keep trying from all these different ways to help people understand that in the ocean of CBD products that are out there, with some of the chemically extracted CBD products that use chemicals, solvents, and gases, this is the only product that is like this. There's nothing else. This is the top tier of all CBD products. I'm not joking. This is not an exaggeration, an embellishment. Grab your thesaurus and tell me all the words. It's none of those things. Howard uses no chemicals, no solvents, no gases in the extraction process, his hit extraction method. It is 100% natural. It's 100% organic. The hemp used is 100% organic, Oregon-grown hemp. And the R&D continues. He keeps getting better and better at developing these products. He has the King Cobra, which is the maximum strength, Little King Cobra, which is regular strength. And for animals, which is actually a huge hit right now, is Wild Thing. And you give that to your pets. It's CBD for pets. And because it's 100% natural in every possible way and organic, you can put it on your body. You can put it in your body. I always say every week that I put it in my shake. I do every single day. And it helps me be my best self I will also remind you that if you contact Howard Hit directly via his website, Blue Cover CBD, he will tell you that it cured his cancer. I can't tell you that, but I can tell you that he will say that if you contact him and he is honest. I also know that it affected his diabetes from his story. He feels it cured his diabetes. I can't make that claim. But he can if you contact him directly. And he will tell you stories of people that he interacted with that shared a similar story where they found their cancer in remission. I'm not a doctor. I can't give medical advice. I can't say that. All I can do is relate and report what Howard is saying as a journalist. 
And that's what I'm doing. So if you contact him at bluecobracbd at gmail.com, he'll tell you all about it. And we do have a discount code that gets you free shipping in the continental 48 United States, which is M-I-D-C-B-D. That's M-I-D-C-B-D. And that gets you free shipping, like I said, on any order in the continental 48 United States. It can be shipped internationally and to other places. But check your country's laws before talking to Howard about this. And he's available, totally available at his website, which is, again, bluecobracbd.com. Everyone, go there. Use the code. Get a bottle. Report to me, as many have. BlueCobraCBD.com. And lastly, one more thing. Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can go there and follow us so you know what's going on. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser, wherever you go to get your podcasts, please click the button that connects us, the follow button, the like button, whatever that button is that connects us, click that so you know what's going on when we have these new episodes, these incredible guests. And most importantly, as I always say, please tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts that would like to know about the Genesis Code and so much more that Richard is about. He has several books. You know that person. You know them well. Tell them about this podcast, midnightonearth.com. Okay, so we have that out of the way, and now I am going to read Richard's bio. Here we go. Richard L. Haight is a best-selling author and the founder of the Total Embodiment Method, which is an awareness training system designed to integrate meditation into one's daily life. Richard is the author of several books, including The Unbound Soul, The Warrior's Meditation, and The Genesis Code that we're going to talk about today. And he is a master level instructor of martial meditation and healing arts. Richard began formal martial arts training at age 12 and moved to Japan at the age of 24 to advance his training with masters of the sword, staff, and Aiki Jiu-Jitsu. During his 15 years in Japan, Richard was awarded master's licenses in four samurai arts, as well as a traditional healing art called Sotai-ho. Richard is one of the world's foremost experts in the traditional Japanese martial arts. Through his books, his meditation, and martial arts seminars, Richard Haight is helping to ignite a worldwide movement for personal transformation that is free of all constraints and open to anyone of any level. He now lives and teaches in Southern Oregon, USA. Hello, Richard. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your presence. Thank you, Jake, for having me. It's a pleasure. Wow. You know, I have to say, this is the first time in my life that I've met someone that is a master 
of more than one samurai. I mean, I'm, I actually don't know anyone that's a master of one samurai art, let alone four samurai arts. That's incredible. Why? I should ask you right away. Why did you pursue that path? Why did you follow the samurai path? What attracted you to that? To be honest, it was, uh, it started when I was rather young. Uh, I just was infatuated with the martial arts. And I remember watching, uh, was it? Uh, you, I don't know if you if, if if you were quite old enough to have seen it, but there was a TV show called Kung Fu. Yes, uh, David Carradine. David Carradine, I yes. love that show. Yeah. And of course, the Bruce Lee Bruce Lee movies and Kung. They had Kung Fu theater on Sunday mornings. <laughs> yes. Broadcasting. Uh, so I just fell in love with it. But uh, uh, I joined a karate dojo in the, in the town that I was in, and, and it just started. Went from there. Uh, at some point, uh, I, I got my black belt. I don't know, maybe. 16 or something like that 17 years old uh, and then i got ruined by a horse oh my god and it, it crushed my spine like an accordion and so i i really couldn't do the martial arts the same way i could before i couldn't do the intensive training um and and so i needed to find a way that uh that wasn't so reliant upon speed and and physical strength because those weren't really options for me. About, about the time I was 21 or so, uh, that's when the UFC opened up. I'm not okay. sure if you're familiar with yes, that mixed yes, martial arts. Yeah, uh, mixed martial arts, ultimate fighting championship. Yes. That's right. And at the time, the the, the champion was a, a, a gentleman named Hoist Gracie. Yes, the famous and, Gracie family and the incredible yeah. uh, UFC champions in, in various fields. That's right. And I thought, I want to, I want to beat that man. <laughs> I want to fight that man. Wow. <laughs> That's quite the goal. So I, was, I was wanting to, you know, there's a few things you need to know before you get into the I would say so. <laughs> uh, but I, and so I started engaging in that training. I, I started training with a um, Olympic alternate uh, from, I think it was a 1964 Olympics named Frank Hankin um for wrestling for that purpose and uh, i was looking for a jujitsu teacher and, and and doing a lot of of, uh, of stand-up fighting and training and that sort of thing but my body just kept breaking down as a result of the spinal injury so i'd, I'd train intensively get myself in really good condition get things smoothed out and, and refined and then it would it would go out um, and then i'd be out of commission for a month month and a half two months and you start all you just can't make progress that way and so at some point it was just really, really clear that I needed to, to find another way. And uh, ultimately that, that led me to, to open up to possibilities that I would not have otherwise considered. I, I, found an in, I, I found a video. It was actually a, a, one of the people that I was training with had, had actually trained with this guy very briefly. And uh, this person was, a, was actually uh, the person that, I, that gave me this video. Um, was the training partner of Hoist Gracie during his first few um, experiences in the UFC. Okay. And so this person, I knew he knew what he was talking about. And he said, you know, this, the, the video they gave me says, you know, for your case, you're not going to be able to do this other stuff, but this is one of the greatest martial artists I've ever met. Um, you know, you might watch this video. So I ended up watching the video and what I saw was just absolutely astounding. He was just tossing people around like it was just, just like it's nothing. It was like magic, and it just—it just seemed absurd. But when I when I watched him describe, uh, he was interviewed in the video what he was doing. I just couldn't detect it. It didn't feel like he was lying at all. 
So I said, I'm going to, I'm going to get on a plane at, at 24. I finally decided to take action. Right. Got on a plane, went to Japan and just figured I was going to find this person. And uh, ultimately I did and joined this dojo and got tossed around a few times. And yeah, you know, I was, I was very skilled at the time and no one was going to make a fool out of me. I, I was going to test, you know, test them out and just, just flattened me. It was effortless. And, uh, <laughs> and it was really astounding. And uh, he was 72 at the time. Oh my God. 72 at the time. So wow. it was just my, it was mind boggling. Right. And so I joined that night and, and I continued training for the next, I trained with him for about five, five and a half years. Um, and then moved to another, um, instructor a fellow named Kuroda Tetsuzo so the first teacher was Okamoto Seigo he's a very famous Japanese instructor and another one was Kuroda Tetsuzo he's a headmaster of a different samurai system it's actually got four arts in it uh swordsmanship and that sort of thing and I, I trained with him for about a year and a half um and then moved to my final instructor his name's Osaki Shizen who, who teaches also four different samurais is a is a what's called menkyo kaiden. It's a that's like the tentacle black belt, having received the entire system. Uh, and then I trained with him for the, until he passed away, and, and I continue, of course. Wow, uh, refining, refining on my own. Well, I think that that was something that you talked about in the book, which I the book, the Genesis Code, when you were describing your story, which I thought was so profound, is that the teacher doesn't want to teach you the exact method that they learned and the exact thinking that they have. They want you to think about the training from independent new angles, which will then generate new energy and perhaps progress the art. I thought that was so profound because a lot of disciplines and you related that to Einstein and a lot of disciplines will just kind of regurgitate the same information, the same thinking, and then it just perpetuates without any actual growth. But that's not what was at the core of his teaching, which I thought was so amazing. Yes. And, and to me, it was, it was rather, rather shocking when he, when he described that to me, the key point that, that is to be fair uh, is that other instructors maybe have a different philosophy entirely. Right. right? But that was his philosophy and I could relate to it because I did understand that, that generally speaking, the people who get to the highest of the highs and find new things, they're not stuck and they, they, they're not brainwashed with a certain way of doing something. They're looking for, they're fresh and their mind is fresh and they work hard to keep it fresh and clear and open and not get slotted in. And so to me, I was, it was beautiful. And I was yeah. a junior high school teacher at the time and I urged my students to, you know, to really explore to explore instead of just instead of just blindly follow. Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing because it seems like guru level thinking where you're just really in the process of creation. You love the art, you understand the essence of the art, but you want it to move forward. It's just really progressive, deeply spiritual thinking. And so then what are the four arts that you're a master of in the samurai world? So there's a a very ancient system. It's actually a, a sort of like a parent system of most modern, or, or, sorry, modern would be not the right word. They're ancient arts, but uh, of, of what exists now is the samurai arts in Japan. So there are many, many offshoots and descendants of the art that I that I study. It's called Yagyu Shinkageru. Um, it's the most famous Japanese martial art of which there are actually very few qualified instructors. Wow. Uh, and so under Yagyu Shinkageru, there's there's several different um, 
weapons you can train in and, and skill sets that you can train in. The first one is is this, what's called hyoho. It's this is like battlefield strategy with the sword. And so it goes, you start your training with the sword and you, you ultimately aiming to master sword in terms of battlefield combat. And, and then from that training, you learn strategy of one-on-one -on -one combat, multiple person combat, full battlefield combat, um, and ultimately just refining your sense of strategy as a whole, right? To be able to see the big picture, but but also deal with the finite detail, the, the, the finite details uh, that 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 help to make the whole, and then within with the another art there is called Seigoryu Batojutsu that's included in the Yagyu uh, Shinkaryu. This is for like the samurai who essentially function kind of like as a police unit after uh, the Sengoku Jidai. Well, Sen Sengoku Jidai is a, the the warring state period of Japan. Japan came into a peaceful period that lasted for about 400 years. So the samurai who used to be just you know a warring class became a police um, policing class basically okay and they had to they had to wear the sword they weren't wearing armor but they were wearing a sword at their side um, the blade turned up instead of turned down um, it's just to symbol symbolize that it's uh, we're here for pe peaceful purposes um, but it, it's this Seigo Jitsu is great for being attacked from around a corner surprised or, or that sort of thing so it's it's sort of um, it, it literally translates in the quick drawing of the sword. Wow. So, so those then so that's two, that's two. Okay. Yeah. And then there's a Seigo, or sorry, a Yagi Jojutsu, which is a short staff. So it's an, imagine you're, you're, you're walking in your civilian clothing and, and you're not, you don't have your sword with you, but you, you have a stick or a staff or a cane. So okay. it, it was originally developed from cane training maybe you're an old man or something like that. Right. <laughs> Uh, and so th that's also uh, one of the arts that I studied and received licenses in. And then the final one is Daitoryu Aiki Jujutsu, which is a kind of, it's a kind of Jujutsu. Interesting. So, and, and that took you from 24 to how long to master all that? I, you know, this strangely, you know, for marketing purposes, I have to use a, a master because I received the master's licenses and that's all correct. But I never think that you actually master anything. Right. I mean, it's, it's continual. I'm training to this day. I, you know, I look back on where I was you know, a, a year ago, a month ago, and I go, yeah, maybe I can refine that. Maybe that's that's old hat that's trying to move on, right? So it's, it's constantly, it's like refreshing your browser. You want to refresh fairly often and so that you can see things new and fresh and, and not get stuck in your previous approach, assuming that it is the ultimate way. Yeah. Old paradigms, as they say, but would you say that it took 10 years to get the certifications? Oh, that's a good question. See, I got the cert. I joined that particular instructor's dojo in 2005, if I recall. Uh, and I trained with him until he passed away, which would have been 2020, but wow. I received the Kaiden. I received the Kaiden in 2012. So it took me seven years wow. uh, to receive the full art in Daitu Aikijutsu and uh, Yagi Shinkagiru Jojutsu. I received master's license and, and Seigo Seigo Bata Jitsu, the one that I didn't receive, a, uh, the full master's license. There's several different layer levels of master's license. Uh, the fullest one is the uh, Menkyo Kaiden. So that's Yagi Shinkagiru, the sword, the battlefield sword combat and strategy uh, aspect. That would be, I'd be maybe, eight to be black belt or something like that maybe right right yeah 
So, wow. So after that training, then how would you say all of what you learned in during that seven years helped you grow spiritually? How did it become, how did it make you become a more spiritually understanding person? You would say, Oh, I can't, I cannot describe <laughs> how much it impacted me because see my teacher's approach was always that things had to actually function and be practical. Okay. And that was a philosophy that I believed as well. I it was, it was, it has to be functional, but most people's spirit, what they call spirituality isn't really very functional, which means under pressure, they sort of fall apart, right? They, they, they start to behave in ways that they themselves don't think represent spirituality. Or what yeah. <laughs> right? We're all guilty no, of that a little bit. Yeah. Not, not, to be fair, we, this can happen to anybody. Yes. I have, have had my moments, right? Um, but so, so from my perspective, his, his, his insistence that everything be practical was very, very helpful to me because at some point during our training, um, I had, I'd had a vision. So I, I, for, for whatever reason, I, I, I'm just prone to having mystical experiences and I've had them since I was a young boy Right. in my life. And there was a, a an experience that I had uh, of, of, in fact, I believe I write about it in two books, The Unbound Soul and The Psychedelic Path. I, I, this was the first time I'd ever done a psychedelic. I went to the Amazon and, and, and stayed with the Achuar people. And the shaman gave us uh, what he called Natim. It's what you would know of as ayahuasca. Right. Very right. big and, right now. Yes, yes. Um, and and so that I had a, a, a really amazing uh, visionary experience. It was completely different from the way uh, mystical or visionary experiences happen to me naturally, but, but it was just as great, you know, just as, just as helpful. Uh, but in that visionary experience, I saw a number of things, um, which maybe we might, if we end up doing and, and talking about the unbound soul, or one of those other books in the future, maybe we might go into that in more detail, but one of them is that I needed to actually uh, collaborate with my teacher so I had I'd come into his training having already received a license in what's called sotaiho. It's a a type of Japanese therapy. So I studied that in Japan because of my spinal issues and bodily issues, okay. and received a license in that. I, I'm never I'm not generally interested in people doing things to me. I, I want to learn. Right. You right. want to learn how to self heal. I want to learn how to to, to understand the principles and uh, of whatever it is and not be dependent on somebody else all the time. Uh, and so. I had also been developing my own meditation systems from a, probably about the age of 18. And, and, and so in that vision, it, I was to discuss or talk about this with my teacher, um, tell him the vision that I had, and then um, start a, we would start a collaboration where he'd teach me the martial arts, I'd teach him the meditation and the therapy art. And from that, something new would be born. And uh, you know, he's a traditional Japanese martial artist. He's never done psychedelics, highly illegal stuff in Japan. Right. It's just like hard drugs as far as they're concerned. You're a bad person if you do that. So <laughs> I mean, the vision telling me do that, and it felt right. I mean, I don't just blindly follow visions, uh, but it just really did feel right to me. So uh, the next, when I returned to Japan, um, I, the first day of training, I, after everybody else left, I contacted, uh, I, I spoke with my teacher and explained um, what that vision was knowing that there's a really decent chance that he just kicked me out of the dojo for, for, for doing psychedelics. 
right? A lot of traditional instructors might do that sure. or just distance themselves from you. So basically you're really not going to progress much after that. Um, but some of the things I said in the vision um, struck him because the head ma- the, the, the founder of Yagyu Shinkagiru um, was named Kamizumi Ise no Kami. He was a daimyo, it would be a, like a, a feudal lord at okay. the time of a certain province. His real passion was mastering the martial arts, and he wanted to find a fresh new way. And he'd had a vision which gave him instruction on how to do that. He'd gone to a shrine and meditated there and had a vision. Uh, and so my teacher was interested in the fact that I'd had a vision that would lead, that would take us to the next level. And so he actually agreed to this. He says, I, I'm really curious about where this is going to go. So let's give it a try. I'll teach you the martial arts. You teach me your arts, and we'll see where it takes us. Wow. And from that point on, I was already a, a, a rather advanced student at that point. Um, so I wouldn't say that just anybody could come to him and ask for that, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I had already, I believe I'd already received the first teaching license at that point. Um, and so we, he said, you know, when, when you're done with work each day, come here early. We'll start training. We'll train privately every day and then break for dinner. And then the other students will come and we'll continue training, but we're going to explore this. And so we did that for from 2009, basically August of 2009 until I retired, which I believe was the next year, um, not two years later, 2011 maybe or something like that. And then from that point on, my training with him was every day from 1 p.m. until 6 p.m. We'd break for dinner. And that's just personal private training, exploring all of this. And then uh, break for dinner, come back at seven uh, and, and begin training until, say, 930 or 10. And so do the math. I don't know, seven, eight hours a day. Yeah. Now, I was taking weekends off because I do value my family. <laughs> but that time really adds up. I mean, you'd be surprised how people don't understand. It's like if you're training martial arts for an, an hour twice a week or something like that, your progress is going to be so slow. But if, if you turn it into six, seven, eight hours a day, you're going to, you're going to go so much deeper. So what you could accomplish in 50 years is accomplished in three. Wow. Right? In fact, maybe what you can accomplish in that few years, you would never be able to accomplish the other way. Because right? of just the fact that there's just too much time. There's too much time in between and your mind's on too many other things. Right. And your body isn't actively, it was the key point is that your body, not even in your mind, your body needs to be doing, this is, this is a bodily art. Your body needs the exposure and there's no escaping that fact. And it's not just thinking about it. Well, you do. This is something that we actually talk about quite a bit. We're inside our body. You're not your body. You're in your body. So there is kind of this other organism that you're sharing a space with. It's your body. And the question it, there is what is the you that's in that body? Right. And I don't mean, I don't, I don't mean that in some like really weird way, or uh, I, I don't mean that in a super abstract way. I mean, what is it we're talking about when we say the you that's in your body? I would you say know? it's living light, uh, an extension of pure consciousness. I, that's what my intuitive answer to that would be. But really we don't. If you were to know. ask your, if you were to ask the average person on the street, what do you think the answer would be? Oh, they would say they're their body. And if they say they're their soul, they'd probably back it up and put it in a religious context and then say, well, I'm a soul, which is and, true. But they wouldn't even know what a soul is. <laughs> That's so, true. So, so like basically we kind of fool ourselves into believing we know what we are. Right. When in the reality is we don't know what the hell we are. 
It's still a mystery, a big fat you know, mystery. Well, that is, you, are, you are the great mystery, right? And and this is so our, our minds fool ourselves into believing we know what we are. And most people actually behave as if they are their ego. And when I say ego, I don't mean the colloquial sense of the term ego, like I'm prideful or sure, sure, sure. Just their personality, that persona that they believe whatever they are, they believe that they are their identity. Yes. But that, that identity is the most recent thing that develops in the, in the developmental developmental process. So uh, in, in the inside the womb or whatever, there isn't necessarily, there are points where there's no identity. There isn't a differentiation between the baby and the mother's body. At some point that capacity develops within we'll say the awareness of the infant or embryo, we don't know exactly when that develops, you know, biologically speaking, scientifically speaking, but it does develop. So these are later developments. The point when you can say, I am me, that's way far into the developmental process. But you've been you even before that voice was in place. Right. Right. You see it? Yes. And, and potentially so even... Sorry, I was going to say potentially even through multiple lifetimes, you know, possibly right. Well, when one could believe that one could perceive that the belief and the perception are not necessarily the same thing, right? Some people have actually had experiences of seeing past life, you know, that that experience. Um, we can't say that that's actually it might be an illusion, might be an hallucination. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter as far as I'm concerned. The, but that's different. Actually, having sort of seen it is different from just hearing a story and believing it. And what I'm saying is different. They're stored in different parts of the brain, brain, that information. Like biologically, it's a different experience. You follow, follow what yeah. I'm saying? So essentially you're saying that our a human experience and how we're processing it is completely different than the true self's ability to process its experience. We're putting it in compartments. We're labeling things, but it's completely different when it actually you actually break it down and pull it back. Yeah, th- things we could almost say it, we can simplify it by saying, it's, it's as if things are perceived from different through different lenses. Yes. Right. And the benefits of these different lenses also differ as well as the disadvantages, the pluses and minuses of each lens that you look through are different. Uh, but to go back to what we're describing as what people think of as you, when a person goes into a profoundly deep sense of a deep meditative state, for example, uh, there's what's called the default mode network. It runs along the central line of the brain between the hem- along the hemispheric line, basically. You, you follow what I'm talking about? Yes, yes. You know it's almost like the energy it's, body, like chakras almost. No, I mean like there are biological places in the brain. So when you are in a medita- highly meditative state, essentially you shut down. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes, I have heard this before. And when those shut down, the, the sense that I am Richard with all of my life story and including my quote unquote spiritual life story, how many different lives I've had, all that stuff, quiets, quiets. You might, you might actually perceive past lives during that time, but you're not personally identified with them. You're not egoically identified with them. So you're shutting all that off and you're going to what place? It shuts off on its own rather naturally. And then what happens is there starts to be this awareness that of, of allness, yes. of connectedness, of just total being. Same thing can happen. Some, many people describe similar experiences on psychedelics. So psychedelics, when, uh, so Johns Hopkins University and various, right now there's a lot of research going into psychedelics, um, have, have shown time and again through MRIs that, that 
this, what we call the default mode network, does indeed shut down with psychedelics. And this is what, it is the shutdown of those areas that allows for the mystical experiences. So when the ego quiets, the mystical experiences occur. Right. So is, is the, is the ego chattering that energy? Is it almost like an energy field that's blocking that pure signal from coming in from the divine? You could say almost like distortion, like a rejection field, but then you shut that off and then the divine energy, the divine information comes in. I would suggest that it may be the opposite, that that divine energy is always there. It's just deeper within the system. Oh. And you shut it off, it, it reveals itself. <laughs> now, the That's experience amazing. That, now, the experience that people have, because they're, later on when they come out of the experience, or even during the experience, there's some amount of chatter still going on from that default mode network, the ego itself, right? Yeah. It's still interpreting things. And it will interpret things oftentimes based on how it's been told to interpret things. Like, you know, spirituality comes from above or from outside or whatever. So it, the experience gets sort of distorted as a result of pre, a pre-established belief. Right. That filter, right. you would say. It, fil- it filters things a bit. It doesn't completely change the experience, but it ch- sort of distorts and, and turns things around. From my perspective, uh, th- this what I'm describing is that universal connectivity is the default mode. That is... If you were looking at a fraction, you have a numerator and a denominator. That's the denominator. Right. 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 So the default that's, that's, mode is pure consciousness, pure love, that pure all state. That's the real, that's most natural state of humanity. Yes. And, and it, it is just crystal clear. It's clarity. Complete, total clarity. Because there's an awareness of information, pure information all around you. The divine, the love, the all. So it, like you said, pure clarity. Because you know everything's perfect in that it's moment. An awareness of, of the nature of being, <sighs> we can say. And so it's not in a non-judgmental state, right? It's in a non-biased um, state. And it's, it's, it's incredibly moving and beautiful. And many people who have experienced this will describe it as the most important experience of their life. And that includes their child, you know, the birth of their child or their marriage or whatever else, right? Uh, many people would, if, if they had a choice between having that experience if, and if they thought that once they'd had it, if they thought they had to die to re-get it, they would actually rather die. I mean, right. it's not, uh, in fact, I, I believe I talk about that in the Genesis code. Um, uh, been fasting, by the way, audience, I've been fasting for 10 days. Now, so <laughs> names I forget. Names uh, Dostoevsky. He wrote a book. Uh, do you remember the name of the book that I wrote about in the Don't, Genesis code? Um, it slips my mind right now. It's sorry. Slipping my mind as well. Character. Lord Meishkin, I think is the name, uh, who has seizures. Now, this is actually. Oh, yes, yes. He has the ecstatic seizures. And when he's having the seizures, he goes into the super bliss oneness state. And he was actually happy to have those seizures. Yes, I do remember that now. Yes, yes. And Dostoevsky describes that one would happily give up their life to, to remain in this experience. And I could fully relate to that. Now I understand it's not necessary to give up your life to <laughs> have that experience. In fact, we can have that experience anytime. Uh, but that takes you know some dedication and 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 a very accurate um, process of of an accurate process that allows for a quieting or even more accurately an opening of the ego. Right, and like you said, these are some of the things that you talk about. In your book, The Genesis Code, which is an incredible book, by the way, it's your most recent book. And really, it 
addresses a situation that I've talked about personally. And I've talked with other people that are in the spiritual new age, metaphysical scene, and they all kind of have this same perception that the Bible, as we know it, the old Testament, the new Testament is incredibly mistranslated and has been mistranslated so many times that a lot of the real meaning, the esoteric meaning is lost. Yes, that's right. Um, in fact, it doesn't take a lot of sleuthing to find out just how distorted the Bible is. And this is unfortunate because many people who have used the Bible as a reference for their own spirituality, um, which includes Gnostics and, and Christians, but also other people, um, have been have been told that that belief that the Bible is infallible is essential in their study. And right. so simply simply suggesting that there may be some things you might want to look at critically here in the Bible is in their mind is undermining their relationship with Jesus or God. Blasphemy. And so they would reject it. It's quite natural if you <laughs> had that belief that you would have to reject right. uh, any criticism of the Bible. But unfortunately, maybe there's something actually much more profound hidden in that in, in that book. Uh, that you're missing as a result of being blinded by your biases and beliefs. And really and, just mistranslations because you mistranslate yeah. one word the wrong way and it can completely <laughs> yeah. shift the meaning of what the intention was. And Oftentimes so times to the opposite. Meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Or just really just grossly distorted, like doesn't even, not even close to the original intention, but That's you right. base this book on a really good translation, a really good translation of Genesis by a man named James D. Tabor. And this book is called The Book of Genesis, A New Translation from the Transparent English Bible. So how did you find this book? And then what made you determine that this book was authentic and as accurate as you can get translating Hebrew to English? So the book was actually recommended to me by one of my close students. Uh, Linda Latoris, and I had I have kept contact with uh, several students that are quite knowledgeable about religion, and it, I, I was going through a process of having mystical experiences. Uh, from for me, they're they're very common. Uh, I would suggest that probably almost half of the days of the year I have mystical experiences, and they're often at night. Um, but one night I had a mystical experience. So that relates to a vision that I had as a young boy. You mind if I share that? A little oh bit? yeah, go ahead. Preface it. So about eight years old when this particular visionary process began, <clears throat> I'd been going to Bible study school. Uh, it was, it was a very fundamentalist type exclusionary exclusive type uh, form of Christianity. And after going there for some time, the, the leader of the, of the Bible study was determined to uh, enlist us, children, to convert our parents right. to Christianity yes. uh, on, on pain of them going to hell should they not convert. <laughs> right. I remember that in your book. <laughs> seems a bit weighty for an eight-year-old child to take on. <laughs> Because see, we were shepherds of the Lord, and uh, and, and they were it didn't matter which what they believed, if, even if it was another type of Christianity, they were certainly going to hell unless they were 
of our school of Christianity. Right, right. You being eight years old, it's not like you've developed a lot of your critical thinking skills. <laughs> uh, and so I was determined because I loved my parents to convert them. So I went home that that evening and uh, and had a conversation. I, I remember asking if if they were willing to have a discussion about religion. And it was like full stop. <laughs> Everything in the house just like time stopped for a minute as my parents tried to work their way through it. My eight-year-old child wants to have a conversation about religion with me. What's wrong with this child? You know, that's that sort of um experience and then after a little pause yeah okay if, we, if you're willing to talk with us communicate with us as an adult then we, we would have that conversation with you after dinner um, and so I was you know quite happy about that <laughs> we had we had the conversation and it was primarily primarily between my father and I who he was more knowledgeable about about Christianity he had read the Bible and um, and, and so basically his concern was that that the God that that was that I was being um, introduced to was not a very loving God because you know what happens to people who've never heard of Christianity or just have no type of Christianity had how do how do you determine which one's the right right one to go to and would a person who had, had not been exposed to the specific form of Christianity that was right just because of their ignorance deserve to go to hell and suffer for eternity? <laughs> would you love a God? Would you respect a God uh, who who behaved that way? And after thinking about it for very, it didn't take long to think about that. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't respect any human that behaved that way or exactly. thought that way. And and uh, that's like the lowest form of thinking as far as I'm concerned. Um, even at eight years old, I felt that way. And I realized I would actually hate that God. I, I would certainly not respect them. And so, but, um, but that kind of showed you that there was these comp- passionate kind of plot holes you could say for in a compassionate person to read this stuff you're like hey wait a second this isn't in sync with infinite love here you know it, god is supposed to be the divine energy is supposed to be infinite love and now we're talking about penalizing people that may have never gotten the phone call and now they're going to burn forever that doesn't that's not compatible with infinite love that's right that's right and and when he introduced me to other religions that have similar teachings. It was, it was very confusing because how would you possibly know if they're all saying the same thing? So basically they're just hurting you with fear, right? They're hurting you into their religion through fear. And that did strike me as a massive hypocrisy, even though I didn't know what that word was at the time. Um, and so, yes, that, that's, that's basically what it doesn't take a lot of, of if, if you're willing to set aside the fear and look at it, honestly, you wouldn't respect I mean, we don't have to go into agape, which is that universal love to compare even personal love. We wouldn't want to be in a personal relationship where that was the nature of the relationship, right? There's just, it just, it's just out of bounds type of teaching that's not helpful for anybody who's on a sincere, honest path or an explorer or a seeker. I suspect it's not helpful for anybody, period, but, but there you go. And so that was sort of the basis from which I suspect that, that may have opened me up. And it was after that that I started having these mystical experiences. Uh, so what would happen is I would wake up in a dream. Have you ever had a dream where you were awake within the dream? Was it like a lucid dream? Yes, very, very many times. I, I could tell you probably similar stories uh, that you have. But yes, it's a very powerful experience to be fully conscious in the dream. Uh, I, I think they call it lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming. That's right. I, I don't think this was actually lucid, but it sort of, have you ever had the dream where you dream within a dream? 
Yes. You yes. wake up from one dream to find out and, and that you're actually in another dream that you then wake <laughs> up from the like layers of dreams. This was probably more like that. Okay. Right. Because I wasn't actually freely conscious within this particular dream. Uh, but so I woke up in the, in the bed, the rooms aglow with this soft, warm light. Uh, and I sense that there's somebody in the room. And I look off to the left and there in the middle of the floor, lying flat on the back is the man. Which, of course, if, if, you're any, if that was a real situation, you'd be terrified. There's a stranger in your room while you're sleeping, lying on the floor, a full-grown man. <clears throat> but there was no fear. In fact, I felt this sort of this feeling like I should approach this person. It was total trust. I got up out of bed and, and, and approached them and looked down into their eyes. And as soon as, I, as we made eye contact, it was this feeling like this was Jesus Christ. Like I just had this in my bones. This was Jesus Christ. No. Whether it's actually Jesus Christ or not at this point, it's irrelevant to me. Uh, but that was, well, I'm just describing what the experience was in, right. in the experience. And there was this profound mix of love and maybe compassion and sorrow. And that's, it was just like it reached to the depth of the soul. And what this sorrow was, was, was a key point. I mean, I could clearly see that that was a question in my mind. What's going on here? And he looks up at me and he says, help me. Oh. And so being an eight-year-old child, the most natural conclusion I would come to is he wants me to help him stand up. Right. Yeah. Cause he was on the ground. He was on the ground. <laughs> so, so, so I grab his left arm and with both hands and I try to help him stand up, but it doesn't work. His arm, his, his wrist just kind of squishes in my hand like a water balloon. And then it occurs to me to look at his entire body. It was kind of sagging. And I realized he had no bones. Right. Yes. I remember this from the book. This is an incredible story. Right. So then he, he, I look back in his eyes and he, he repeats, help me again. And at that moment, I'm out of the dream. I wake up. And uh, it, was just, it, was, it was just such a soul-wrenching experience because the way he said, help me, it was like a pleading it was, it was a pleading. It was deep, deep, deep from the soul. Deep from the soul. So it felt something so important, but I had no idea how to help him, and I couldn't get back into the dream. I mean, I remember trying to get back in the dream. It just wouldn't happen. And, uh, now, this dream would repeat itself every I don't know, couple of weeks or something like that, every so often, over a period of maybe six months to a year. It's, it's hard to remember, but it happened multiple times. Exactly. Moment by moment, each time, the same dream. Never a variation, not for a second. Every time I woke up at exactly the same moment, and usually in tears. Uh, I didn't know. And so I would I'd go to school, and this is this was on my mind constantly. What does he want? What does he want from me? I wasn't able to pay attention in school. I, I, I never shared this with any friends or family or any. I was just, it was, it was something I couldn't talk about with anybody. I, I didn't think anybody would understand, but I also didn't think, um, it was, it didn't feel appropriate to share at that point for whatever reason. I, I couldn't even explain it at that time. Well, you were also time. young as well. I mean, it was a pretty profound dream and you know, it just, you probably just didn't want to make waves. You're a kid, you know, you, oh, just, yeah, certainly. Certainly. you know, yeah. Don't want to be teased about some stupid dream. Yeah. Too, right? <laughs> and there were, <laughs> so, so that's, that's what happened in the final dream at that last moment. So I had been, I'd been like praying for lack of a better term throughout this process to, that I could just stay in the dream a bit longer. And finally, one time 
at the moment where I got kicked out, the surge of energy came through my body and it anchored me in the dream. And then I could ask him, how can I help you? And he says, find my bones for they are the core of my teaching. Wow. Please, please find my true teachings and, and bring it back to the world. My teachings have been corrupted over the generations. Very little of what I actually conveyed remains. Please find the bones of my teachings and bring them back to the world. Will you do this? I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact words. I wrote them down. Most accurate would be uh, whatever I wrote in the Genesis Code and the Unbound Soul. Uh, but I, my, my entire body was just alight with this feeling of rightness. Like that was my path for reasons I didn't even know. And I just, yes, I'll do this. And that began my, that began my, um, my path. Yes. And, and you did point out in your book how you tried to help Jesus up and his arms were flexible. Like, like he had no bones there. They were, it was like a balloon. It was like one of those adjustable clown balloons that you could just like smush and, and is malleable because in that dream, he wanted you to reawaken humanity to this lost knowledge. That's right. That's right. And so that was, that was, that gives us sort of a little background of, of the, the direction of my life. And then, Maybe a few years ago, I don't remember. I think it was sometime maybe late la uh, in the beginning of 2020, 21, or something like that. So very recently, I had um, a vision or mystical experience that revealed to me the bones of his teachings as they were found in the Bible. And so I saw a Bible flipping from the back all the way to the beginning. And it, st it stopped on Genesis 1, and then slowly the pages flip. I could see the text, and the, the text was highlighted. The key points were highlighted until it got to, to the end of Genesis 3. And that, 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 that is the core teaching is found there. Anything else that evolved from there? You're visually seeing the highlighting. It's, it's like a light, an ethereal light that's pointing you into these various Even points. Even simpler than that. It was like a yellow highlighter pen. Yes, but it wasn't like there a, naturally. I mean, it was coming yeah, from the spirit world. It was world. just in my consciousness. And yes. It was just wow. as real as me talking to you now. Like I had, there's the book, I'm, I'm seeing the page and I'm reading the text. And, and as I'm seeing the highlights, I can clearly understand what it means and how it all fits together. So when, once that was over, I went to my, my office, uh, which is where you're speaking to me now, and, and, and grabbed one of my Bibles and opened it up to that page. And there, there, there was the text. It was just as I saw it, uh, which was which is a confirmation the vision was helpful. I always like to verify things, sure, uh, sure, because I don't want to convey anything to other people that would waste somebody's time, right? People, people's time—that's the most precious asset you have because you oh, can't yeah. get it back, right? <laughs> you can't get it back. So I try to convey things in my books that are very helpful and practical, or any of my teachings for that matter, very practical and helpful, and that will save people a lot of time. But there it was. And so the next question was, I could see, of course, there's issues with translation. And so from that point, I wanted to find the most, reflect, the, the most reflective translation of the ancient Hebrew that there is available. And, and so I spent like, I don't know, almost a year just looking for translate. One of my wow. students ended up sending me one, and it, it's the Tabor translation. Uh, uh, it's, the title is the book of Genesis for anybody's interested. It's absolutely beautiful. It gets the poetry and uh, the cultural and um, perspectual 
feeling of Hebrew in it. And no, no translation, of course, is perfect, but it, it was it's just just amazing. Breath yeah. of fresh air. The excerpts that are in your book, the Genesis code, you actually include uh, portions of it. It's mind blowing. It's absolutely mind blowing. It's mind blowing. Yes, indeed. In fact, I reached out to Dr. Tabor and asked him if I could include uh, text from his book. Uh, I needed it all of one through three, Genesis one through three from my book. And he graciously reached out to me and said, here you are. And, and, and just what a nice guy. In. Yeah. What, what a great, I think he's sincere in his search and he's just trying to get good information out there. And uh, so that was, that was, that's what happened. And that was the, that's where the book started. Now I actually started writing a little bit on the Genesis code and researching it back in 2015 when I was writing the unbound soul. Once I finished the unbound soul goes into, in fact, I believe it is a chapter titled the bones of Christ. Um, it's the last chapter. And so that led me into, okay, now specifically in the Bible, once I finished that book, where are these bones okay. in the Bible? I didn't know at that point. Um, so in the vision that I had as a child, what, what, what was clear to me was I would have to find this on my own through my own life. I couldn't defer to anybody. I couldn't go to some teacher. I couldn't just read this in a book. I had to find this through my own life experience. And once I did, the teachings that are, that are the bones of Christ, um, the essential teachings that are still in the Bible will be obvious to me, that they will start to stand out. And that's what that vision represented. Uh, and so that was how the, 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 that book developed. Well, I thought it was interesting. There's so much history in this new translation, the history of the various Jewish tribes that came together, two cultures coming together and merging their creation story. There's so many clues hidden within that new translation that James Tabor did that, that really just expand the whole experience. Because even if you've studied Gnosticism, even if you've studied the earliest translations of Genesis, this translation specifically opens up a lot of new areas of thinking. It's yes. really amazing. And one thing I wanted to uh, touch on is that in that translation, humans are described as soil creature. That's right. Which That's is what Adam means. Soil yes. creature. Eve means breath of life. So we've got soil and, and, and wind essentially. And which is really amazing because uh, in the Islamic kind of Abrahamic creation story, the angels, the fallen angels rebelled because they didn't want to worship humans, which they perceived as animated mud is what they said, animated mud. And this translation agrees with that. It's saying, yes, it's, these are soil creatures because like you said in your book, everything within the human body can be found on the earth. Every element, every mineral found on the human body is somewhere on the earth. There's nothing exclusive to the human body. That's right. There's nothing that we, there's nothing physical within the human body that we can find that is not earth. Right. And nothing on the earth that we can find that is not of the solar system, our sun, nothing of our solar system, which is not of the galaxy, nothing of the galaxy, which is not of the universe. It's, we're a reflection of the totality and it's mud. And, <laughs> and that's, that's okay. okay. Yeah. And that's okay. <laughs> So, so the pride of human beings, the ego would like to think we're somehow special, right? That we're somehow special <laughs> and above everything else. That's the Lucifer voice. That's the satanic voice within each individual. So right. Right. And that's what distorts our perception of reality. 
And most of our perceptions of reality are distorted. Um, and that's what blocks us from being in an actual experiential or totally embodied in our spirituality is the fact that we don't perceive directly. No, and I'd say through filters. And I would say that a lot of people's uh, mental health issues, their emotional disharmonies can all be traced back to this understanding that they think they are their body. They are the soil creature. And there's and once the soil creature's gone, then they're dead or they don't know where they're going because they're so vested in being the physical embodiment of themselves versus realizing they're just kind of driving a car. You're in this vehicle to experience this third dimension. You're not the vehicle. Nobody's the car. Like if I saw you driving down the road, uh, I, I don't know what kind of car you own. Uh, maybe perhaps a Toyota. I wouldn't say, Hey, Toyota. Hey, Toyota. I would say, Hey, Richard. Uh, I, I might build off you a fresh perspective on this one. Okay. So the idea that you're describing here, and I believe that this is a, first of all, most people actually don't think that they're a body. I mean, if you ask them, they may say that, but if you actually are, if you become aware of, of energy, what you find is most people's energy is up in their head. Okay. They are unrooted from their body. They uh, think that they're somewhere up here in their head. Like there's this little throne right here where that's where they are. And that, that's what people think. And so they, they actually, their movement is distorted by, the fact that they're moving away from their body. They're not rooted in their body. And the other, um, I, I suspect, perception that's holding us back is that they're thinking of the body as being a thing, an object, like you just described as a car. Sure. That they're riding. But let's, let's play a little game here. Okay. Is there anything here, is there anything in this body that is of this body, in this body, through this body, that is not the earth that you no, can point to. Not at you all. You can prove it. Nothing. Nothing. All right. So then the next question is consciousness. How is it that we have a mind and a consciousness? If there's nothing here that's not of the earth, then how is it possible that we have consciousness? Mind. Yes. Ego. Mind. And we can have this conversation at all. That I can say what experience is like, what, what it is to be. How is it that that voice can exist at all? If there's nothing here that is not of the earth, does that not mean that the earth has that within it? That the atoms, the molecules themselves are conscious? I'm not saying that they, that they are conscious. I'm not saying that they have the same kind of intelligence. An insect has a different type of intelligence than does an animal. You know, a dog can sense many more sense than, than a human being can, can detect many more sense, uh, sense of smell, right? right? Than a human being can. They have a different way of perceiving things. Some animals see in, in at night, see in infrared and that sort of thing, right? Sure. And and have a different process way of processing information. There's many different types of intelligence. So the first essential thing is to differentiate intelligence from consciousness. Consciousness is the perception of being. It is simply perception itself. From my perspective, the entire thing, the entire universe is conscious. Yes which means all the atoms and molecules in your body are conscious, which means you don't have to have something else sitting in your body that makes you conscious. There didn't have to be a separation of a spirit and the body, the body, the molecules, the atoms, the cells, they're all conscious. They're all spirit. Everything is spirit, every rock, every tree, it's all conscious. When it comes together in a human being, it develops the intelligence to say, I'm a human being. I'm Richard. 
you're not me. Now, intelligence allows that egoic perspective, allows the body to navigate the world when it's not aware of that innate consciousness. It's a fundamental quality that allows the body to survive. It's not wrong. It's, it's actually right. Like the body could, you could, the universe couldn't be experiencing through a human body were it not for that ego. Right. There has to and be some so, separation. From my perspective, it didn't have to be, but there's a phase, a growth period, a, a, like a process where that sense of separation develops so that the ego can, can develop, right? At some point, one can transcend that. But it's a maturation process, we'll say. From my perspective, whatever this is, is just the universe exploring itself. My body is the universe exploring itself through a certain lens, just as your body is the universe exploring itself through a certain lens. The universe is what I am, or the, the in, innate, most default consciousness is actually what I am. It's not a who. It's, it's, it's my fundamental nature. That same fundamental nature is in your body. So while we're having this conversation, I'm not uh, talking to somebody else. I'm talking to me. Wow. You are me in another body. I am you in another body. It's like two hand puppets talking to each other, <laughs> not recognizing that they're connected by hands to a central torso. And so there's no need to have this idea of a separate spirit that's outside the universe that comes in and inhabits a body and drives it like a vehicle. But could that information exist on different layers? Like, could you say that the multidimensional experience would be existing as a body, a spirit in a body, and then another layer would be just consciousness existing as the body and as you. But then somehow you have to combine those, all those different layers to form an even bigger perspective. Or would you say it's really just about growing and evolving and getting to that point where it, it's just all consciousness, it's all spirit, whether it's a physical every body? Every dimension or- to me, every dimension to me is just another another area of exploration of consciousness. Consciousness is throughout all of it. Whether it's a physical dimension or non-physical dimension is not relevant to me. They're all explorations or perspectives of consciousness, exploring its own nature, playing a game uh, of seeing itself from different perspectives. It's actually geometrical. It's, It's systematic. And, uh, and it's a play, it's a game. And so when Jesus is on the cross, that story of Jesus being on the cross, they say God is on the cross suffering. That's actually in a certain way true. Whether it's a true story or not, at a, at a meta level, at an archetypical level, it is a person and God on the cross simultaneously, just as you are on the cross. That's, your life has suffering in it. it. It's not God has done something to you. It is the experience of, uh, and when I say God, I reach me conscious, like the yeah, fundamental consciousness. Of course, right? yes, yes. I don't mean a, a, a bearded guy on a, on a Yeah, we're not talking about religion here. Yeah. I don't mean an old bearded guy in a cloud, and we can toss out the word God. I mean, it's, it's No, no, it's, it's fine. I love that word. Our, our listeners right. were are very aware of the the just the universal God of just the mystery, the all, right. you know, that sense. And so when I say, it's the same way when I say universe, people think I mean the physical universe only. I mean, universe is like whatever it is, is unified. The, the, the totality of being. That's what I mean by universe. That, that includes the, what we look out and see the, of the physical universe, right? 
But what we see is just a tiny fraction of the totality. That's pretty mind-blowing to think about because it really awakens the Christ consciousness, the Buddha nature, the Krishna consciousness. It, it elevates you to a place where you can process more information. It's, it's interesting, although I would suggest we switch the geometry. It actually is simpler. It's not an elevation. You're right. It's, it's, in, it's internal. It's, <laughs> it's an internal dropping down to the very depth of con. So the highest level of your perception, what it will say is like the thing that's furthest removed from your root of being is the egoic self. Yes. And it keeps wanting to go up and up and up <laughs> in its pride, in its pride. And the reality is we, we simplify, we go down, we think, make the, sim- the thinking simpler, not more complex, drop down deeper into the body. And there we find this awakening. The awakening comes through is, a, is actually a physical experience. It's an embodied thing. If you keep trying to go up all the time, you have to fall back down. Where is it that you can't fall from? The lowest point. Uh, man. You cannot fall from the lowest point. You fall from the heights. Every time you try to go up, you will fall again. The reason you fall is because the truth is at the basis. It's not up there. Right. It's right? inside. What has to happen in this awakening process is that you fall through a kind of inner hell, which for example, Carl Jung would call the shadow. Yes. And the shadow is essentially a whole system of lenses and biases, uh, traumas, and um, many, many things. Uh, I have, it's a lot more than I've ever seen documented. I, I've, I have a course that walks people through it. I don't actually recommend people to take this course unless they're willing to open a door that they know they will never be able to close again. Mm. Okay. And knowing that they go when they go through this door, they're going to start to encounter their inner hell, which is all the things throughout their life that they have not wanted to see. Things that they haven't believed they are capable of seeing. Things that terrify them about themselves and life. All right, so I don't want to go too deep into that here because it can actually open people up to that and just talking about it um, in a way that they cannot close the door again. And some people who um, have a propensity towards psychotic breakdown can have breakdowns just from that exposure. Ah, Cause they just can't process the information of the traumas or the mistakes they've made in the past or whatever they've experienced that they're right. That's in the shadow right. part of them as young would say. That's right. And so what happens is they, there starts to be this, a kind of uh, turning away from reality. And that is that can lead to a psychotic break. Oh my god! It is ultimately a, turn, a turning away from what we we call the shared reality, right? But if you feel like you're strong enough, if you feel like you've trained yourself enough to where you could handle something like that, then you're saying that is or one path to get to that inner root of enlightenment, that inner inner enlightenment. There are some temporary shortcuts. So we can take a psychedelic that might get us to that, to have a, what we will call a peak experience or psychedelic experience. Sometimes meditation can do this. But if it's going to be a permanent embodiment or, or a full experience that is lasting through your daily life, you have to go through the shadow. There's no getting around that. You have to go through the shadow. Right. So, so in, in a sense, Jesus had to go to hell before he could open up. The Buddha had to go to hell before they could open up in this way, right? And just as every person does. And so there's no, there's no doing this without tremendous courage. Courage is the first thing. And I would suggest there's no such thing as an actual coward. There's only people who believe they're cowards. Yes, they have the 
inner divinity locked up within them and they could embrace that just like every other human and heal themselves and move forward. That's right. And so what ends up happening is you, you, you're not going to be able to, uh, to find that courage or reveal that courage until you start facing challenges because courage doesn't exist without fear. So many people in spiritual path are trying, are are saying there's no, there's no fear. There's no fear. Um, I shouldn't be afraid or that kind of, that's not helpful. Fear is exactly right. It's not a problem. Right. Turn into it when it's necessary. That's courage. There is no courage without that. Right. And that's what's liberating because as you do this, you start to realize, wait a minute, I uh, there's enough within me to do that. It's a real revelation of the profound strength that's within you that allows you to move through the difficulties. And I think that you can amplify your courage with faith. And I'm not talking about the faith that, like you were saying earlier, as things are generalized, faith in a religion or just faith in some information that you can't prove. It's really just having the absolute belief in the divine being love and that the divine's with you in all your decisions. So that courage to embrace the shadow can be backed by faith, depending on your relationship with that higher mystery. Now there's a, there's another way of looking at this that can, 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 can actually be very helpful if if you're willing to see it from a different lens here. Of course, that's what we do here. So what we're doing is we've got, we've got, we're working with language. Okay. Um, And in fact, in, uh, in the Genesis code, I talk about what, what is described as the logos. This is a Greek term. Yes. The logos can mean many, many things, one of which is reason, um, one of which is true words. Um, and one can't get to reason until we have true words, of course. If we're not being honest with our language and definitions, then we're lost. So we've basically got three words we're going to be working with here. One is belief. Okay. One is faith. Are these the same thing? I'm going to say no. Why not? Why are they different in your mind? What, what is different about them? I guess we could say. Um, <clears throat> belief seems to have some sort of concrete kind of like material three-dimensional definitions to hold up its truth and faith while maybe having some of those belief uh, parameters is also requiring multidimensional information to then strengthen your perspective. So it's outside of the third dimension, I would say, is what faith differs from belief for me. All right, perfect. Okay, so I'm going to give a, a bit different explanation of some of these things. Okay. Uh, so so the first one is belief. And so we'll just be really simple and practical, almost like from an evolutionary development point of view, to get a sense of a really finite definition that's functional. I have to believe that my hand reaching out to grab this bottle that has water in it. I have to believe that one, my hand can actually reach out and grab this bottle or my body simply won't do that. I believe I'm strong enough to do it. All of that. I have to also believe that that water is a nutrient or my body won't drink it. That's the most basic definition of belief. Now belief is essential for your body to do anything. There's no getting around it. You, you wouldn't do anything without a belief that the accomplishment, that doing it will accomplish something, right? And so everybody is a believer. It's just what they believe in, isn't it? Now, there's some beliefs which, like, I could believe that, that, that there isn't a sun outside. Like, 
with regards to the perception of reality. I could believe that. I close my eyes and go, there's no sun outside and try to create this belief. <laughs> try to create this belief. But no one would say that that belief is true. Like uh, from a physical measurement point perspective, right? Yeah, no they- one believes. It, it, that's my personal truth, right? That's it's basically bullshit, right? <laughs> it's bullshit. Right? Yeah, just okay. like because anybody could say, "Go outside, look, there's the sun." That's great that you believe that, but come on, we're all here looking at. So it. then, my choice, if I want to maintain that belief, is to put my head in the sand. Yes. Now, if my sense of being and existence and and uh, feeling of, of of being worthy depends upon there not being a sun. Now, my, the, the value of my soul is at stake. I'm not going to go outside anymore. I'm never going to look up. <laughs> right? That's, that's a lie. Yes. Right? But, but we have many things that we call beliefs that are, in fact, lies. Right? They're, they're not functional. And they're actually compensations for a feeling of a lack of worthiness. I need to be saved. There's something wrong with me fundamentally. and I need to be saved. And so I have to believe in a certain thing in order to be saved. It's my rabbit's foot, right? It's my rabbit's foot. But that may not actually be true. And it's actually indicative of a lack of faith. So one of the things that Jesus said, which is uh, it's brilliant, he says, have the faith of a mustard seed. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can do these amazing things, is what he said. What does that mean? Oh man, you know, I just have a, I just had an inspiration. I, my whole life, you know, as a kid, you hear that, uh, Bible verse and you think, you know, you have the faith that's measured this small, right? Like people think of like physical measurements, but now I'm realizing at just talking to you, your energy, I'm thinking it's morely the faith of the process of the growth of the mustard seed, because if you plant the mustard seed, you put water on it. The mustard seed activates the DNA. the The roots happen. All of these right. things happen by pure faith. Wow! You got I, it. I, you I, got it. It's yeah. a revelation of the nature of being, and it's a <laughs> faith in the natural process. There's nothing to do with the size. Nothing <sighs> to do with the size. I really just got it that has right nothing now. Nothing <laughs> to do with belief. The, the mustard seed isn't thinking. I believe. I believe. I believe. I will grow. I believe. I believe. I'll flower. It doesn't do that. That's not what it does. Just as a baby doesn't do that. You've developed without any belief that you're going to develop. When you cut your hand, does it heal because you believe it'll heal? You can cut your hand and not even know it was cut, and it's it still will heal. Your body knows. You don't have to believe it. I'm not saying that belief has no function. I'm just saying that faith and belief are not the same thing. Yes. But people have misunderstood the meaning of faith this entire time. For thousands of years, I've never seen anybody discuss faith in the way we're talking about it right now. Another word for that faith is trust. Yes. And this is what you talk about with your trust experiment. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so let's separate the words into three. We've got belief. We have what other people call faith. And then what I call faith is trust. But it's a it's all caps trust. It's a faith in being itself without an outcome in mind. That mustard seed isn't thinking I'm going to be a big plant. Then have to think that it, its very nature will tend it toward that. That's the flow of its being. It's totally natural. 
just as the flow of your being was to develop into an adult. The fact that we have so many blocking beliefs interferes with that development. There are areas in, in the human being that haven't developed and haven't matured because of denying the sun, as we talked about earlier, because <laughs> of our beliefs right. and biases. And this isn't, these, aren't, these beliefs are not all just religious. Some of them are scientific, or at least they, they're narratives that have come through faulty science. Yes, yeah, societal. There's a lot of faulty science out there, too. Yeah, so. societal beliefs. I mean, you could apply that same formula to all different sectors right. of cultures, human behavior. Yeah. Cultures, um, all story, all st- the story of your life is a hindrance to you. It has a function because you'd like to wake up in the morning and, and know where you ought to be going. And that's included in the story of your life. Like, I'd better go to work. Right. Because <laughs> you remember it. It's not that the story of life is wrong. It's just that we believe it to be so true and we cling to it. Softening it is what allows our mind to refresh, like a web page refreshing. Right. Right. Softening our beliefs is the key because as we soften them, that allows that descent into the body and the trust that in the body's own intelligence. Now, ask yourself this. Can the egoic perspective, the story of your life, everything that you believe true to you, and your thinking mind now that most people think of as themselves, is that superior to the intelligence of the body? I'm going to say no. Okay, the question would be why? (laughs) Well, I would say um, because the intelligence of the body is rooted in the intelligence of the all, the, the the true flow of the universe. I mean, the, just like we said with the mustard seeds, the intelligence of the body is backed by the faith that you were talking about earlier. And so the, it, the other so time. So much knowledge and information in the body. Like yes. Un, uh, more than it could ever be held in any supercomputer. Yes. Think, think about what your body does in every moment. I mean, the fact that you're breathing, you don't have to think about your breathing. You have to think about how to run your heart. You don't have to think about the digestive process. It all just happens your blood flowing, the pressure, it, it's all happening. It's, it's, it's regulating constantly the amount of water to salt that goes into the cells. And it's like all the little things that are happening in your cell to metabolize. If you were to give that job to the thing that's thinking and say, okay, you got to run this entire body right now. You got uh, 10 minutes, run the body. You'd be dead. Right. It's just you so much die. information. It's, it's quantum. Couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle it. And so it's important to understand that the, the king here, if we, were to, if we were to use religious terms, if you were to compare the thinking egoic mind and then the total body, the master is the body. The thinking mind is a servant. The challenge is that the thinking mind thinks it's the master. And that's why meditation is so hard. And that's why spirituality is always such a challenge. Do you believe it's possible, though, to bring that mind into at least balance or some situation to where it's not prone to the instinctual needs of the body? Okay. So I'm, I'm not sure I understand that question. Well, okay. Uh, so, so the, the body has needs, like, let's say your body has addictions or like, you know, you, you have drug addictions or some. Okay, situ- so so we've got to be careful with our words. Cause we're saying addictions are needs. Well, no, I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> but they're, we're going to be careful with our words. If we're going to get any, any progress here. But, but so essentially like think of the body, like, you know, as an autonomous organism that has that, you, you know, maybe you've fed it cake, you fed it chocolate cake and you know, the chocolate cake isn't very healthy, 
but you've put that in your body and your body loves it. And then you see that chocolate cake again uh, and your right, body okay. wants that reaction. And then can you develop your thinking mind enough to where it's in balance to where you can say, okay, body, that's not going to help me. It's not going to help you. It's not going to help our collective experience. Can we avoid that? And then, you know, move forward. All right. Now that's, that's, thank you. That's a, that's a very helpful question. So <laughs> first I would suggest that it's actually not your body that's craving the sugar or the heroin or whatever. In, in the case of the body, it's probably your gut bacteria that's driving the, driving the, uh, urge. Yes. And so basically what's happening is your mind, so you're sitting there and you're munching on your salty potato chips or eating your <laughs> chocolate nuggets or whatever you call them <laughs> unconsciously while you're talking with someone or working or, you know, that sort of thing, or you feel like this urge to go up in the kitchen and do that and get those things and start munching on them. Those that's an unconscious process that you believe you are choosing, but actually something else is driving your vehicle to do that. Right that's not even you would not call human it's bacteria so it's not even the body it's something within the body something within the body now now the interesting thing about the body is only about half of the content of the body could be described as human cells maybe even less than that i, th I think recently they, they revised it. it's like one tenth oh of the God. content of the body. most of it is bacteria really yeah oh my god we're an ecosystem all of it is intelligent and all of those things are affecting what you think of as your conscious mind. Right. The thoughts that you have are not all coming from the body. They're coming from the ecosystem. Oh my God. This is scientifically factual. This right? is heavy information. These are powerful downloads. There's people listening to this or that will be listening to this that are flabbergasted. Like I am, this is incredible information. And so uh, this is just a reflection of whatever we will call you. You're incredible. You are freaking amazing mystery <laughs> of being. This is true. Um, this is to everybody in the audience. You are the great mystery. The question is, do you trust that? And are you willing to explore that? And so what's happened with my body is, so part of your question was, is it possible for the thinking mind to, um, become aware of these things. I guess that's what you're asking. Yes. And then maybe uh, work around them in a way that's functional that could benefit you. So one of the most fascinating things that occurred to me in my training in Japan, and I suspect that many people can have, if we really search our experiences, we'll discover a time in our lives where this has happened and we can consciously point to it. But through the, through the system of, of therapy that I studied, if this, what I'm going to describe occurred, and it started to happen in the martial arts when I got to, the, to a high level, is what I would call autonomic movement. Are you familiar with, with the autonomic nervous system? Uh, not, not, no, I'm, it's not ringing a bell currently. Okay, so we have the, the cranium that holds what we think of as the brain. Now, from my perspective, the brain runs through the entire body because there is no disconnect from what we call the... the um, the brain and the head from the spinal cord, right. from the nervous system that runs through and extends through your hands and all of that. And so to me, the entire body is a brain. Like that's how I see it. When I'm watching, when I'm communicating with somebody, I'm listening to what they're saying. But by far the more important thing is what their body's doing. The energy that's coming from the body, what it's communicating. And it's communicating so much more than the thinking is, than the, than the thoughts conveyed, than the words are conveyed. Right. That's that that's telling me the truth. 
of that individual's psychological circumstance. Right. And bodily circumstance. Right. So the entire body is a, again, conscious system. And this includes the cells. It's not just the nervous system. Myofascia is a, is a communication system that runs from, from just under the skin throughout the entire body to the bones, to the organs, through the muscles, right? All this. But there's an autonomic nervous system. This controls your digest, digestion. It controls breathing. This is what it's a, an automatic nervous system that controls healing and, and all of that stuff in the body. Okay. So you have the central nervous system, which is somatic. It, 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 that's what you, you think. You, you think and you move your hand. I, I want to get this. So you reach out and grab it. It's, it's intentional. The other one is happening automatically. What I realized is that my body will defend itself automatically, intelligently, not just out of habit, that my hand will move to this person's certain part of their body to work therapy without me having to think about it at all. My body will move on its own to solve problems, to go through challenges. My body has awakened in a certain way that is probably very, very rare. My body does things on its own and I'm watching what it does. So my wife had this experience relatively, uh, it was maybe last year. I don't remember exactly what it was that she was having to, to um, choose between, but there was some question in her mind. She wasn't sure what the answer, I think it's the, this particular thing. She's point, she wanted to point to give me the answer. Her finger pointed to the other thing. She said, I think it's that thing. The finger was right. Her body picked the right thing. Her mouth, her thinking mind had it wrong, right? That's autonomic movement. And the trust I'm talking about is for that. Okay. The trust I'm talking about is for your body's innate intelligence that repressed by the egoic mind. So, so when I talk about this thing, it's actually extraordinarily natural, but people have almost never experienced it. It sounds so mystical and so far from them because it's been so repressed, they don't even remember it occurring in their lives, but it's actually there. It's just been covered over. And the more that we start to trust in it, setting aside our biases, working through the shadow that biases us, being extremely honest with ourselves first, but being extremely honest and authentic not trying to mask, not trying to be this certain character that, you know, putting on a, a show for people, but deeply, deeply honest, what happens is there starts to be this clarity. And that innate intelligence reveals itself. And it's brilliant. And would you say that intelligence is then connected to the collective and the all the, the, yes, yes. That, that's that I will say this that, that that's my perception. That's what I see. That's what I experience. Whether okay. that's factually true or not, I, have, I don't think there's any scientific way to measure <laughs> it. So I don't like to say it's true. That sounds really arrogant <laughs> because it would it would be arrogant. I'm just saying from my perspective, that's what I'm perceiving. Right. So my job is just to share as honestly as possible what I'm perceiving to the to the extent that it can be helpful to other people. Yes. That's, it. that's my job as an author. That's my job as a speaker. That's my job as a mentor. That's my job, period. To save everybody as much time as possible. Okay. And then from there, I mean, you said you're a rare person. You feel like that kind of has this understanding of that 
autonomic nervous system. But do you have you met other people that are kind of uh, skilled in that way? It seems, yeah, it seems to be the case that this happens for people that generally take whatever skill they have to extremely high levels. Usually it's physical stuff. Okay. Like martial arts, for example. I've met other martial artists who have developed this, this capacity has emerged in their training at some point, and that's become to the forefront of their training to that one area of their lives. Interesting. So perhaps this really deep training, like you're saying, conditions the body to be more in harmony with the mind. And yes. then you, you have this both separate and collective experience with the body. That's right. That's, that's my perception of it. And now it can be compartmentalized to just whatever particular skill area that you've been studying. My interest was not that. I was interested in that skill area, of course, very interested in the martial arts, but I was interested in that it bleed into the therapy. I was interested that it bleed into the meditation. I was interested that it be throughout my entire daily life. And with persistence and a lot of exploration and real honesty and authenticity and the willingness to go through very, very painful experiences that we will call shadow stuff and facing fears. This is, this quality has emerged throughout my daily life. Wow. It's possible for anybody. So a lot of things I'm saying here, you're saying this is all new information. This is profound or something. Yes. This is, it's because it's coming from my body. I'm not regurgitating anything anybody else said. I don't care what they say. Right. Because that information, if it's true, is at the core of your being. So instead of having to follow what somebody else says, so many people are just repeating what their, what their teacher told them, or what they read in a book. But that's not authentic. How do you know that's true? Have you dove down into the depths of your being? Have you explored every nook and cranny of, the con- of your subconscious mind and all that shadow content? How do you know that heaven is up? How do you know that? <laughs> right? Yeah. You don't. Actually, right. if you're being honest, you really don't. It's when you go down into the depths and you open your eyes to fully see without flinching, that these things reveal themselves. And the revelation is a tremendous correction. It's a correction of your, your, your body, your mind, your environment. All these things spill out into your environment. You're going to start to relate to people differently. You're going to start to be interested in things that maybe you'd put aside because you, like one, one, one person that, um, that I mentored at some point, they really love pottery, but they stopped doing it. They stopped doing it because they thought it's, it's kind of, it's just a hobby. It's just a hobby, quote unquote. I've got, and I need to make money. This isn't productive for society. It was like all this ideology was blocking them from the thing that their body maybe was using as a means of developing communion, of making that connection between mind and consciousness, that touching of the, of the earth, the pottery and feeling. It's the feeling of the physical, kinetic feeling touch is so vital to this process. And that was blocking her. That was blocking. So I said, you, you, part of her problem is she has, she didn't have passion for life. She was like nothing she really was passionate about. Actually, there was, but she'd been denying it. So right. you, you might want to do pottery and forget this idea that it's 
it's not economically reasonable or it's a, it's just a silly hobby or something. <laughs> totally embrace it without judging it. And you will find that that one thing will trans start to transform your life. And within weeks, she was like, I feel, I feel so much better. Like, <laughs> I'm like I'm on fire. Right. I mean, if you, if you pay attention to your body, really pay attention to your body and you start to notice what, what your body's, how your body feels as it's going through different activities your body will reveal to you what your path is because you will be totally engaged in it. It will feel meaningful, engaging. It will feel necessary and it will be helpful. So really just getting in touch with that is the key to personal development, you could say, because that's what we're supposed to be doing here really is just developing ourselves to our best point our high our high like you said you don't want to go up or but really just developing ourselves to our fullest potential you could say i would suggest that that's actually not our purpose here okay let's our purpose is from your perspective what well so the question is what is the hour so hour means that there's an i and what is that i is it the individual little thought or the universe so you're asking a question that is deeply metaphysical and ontological. It goes to the core of being. So the question is, okay, so we've got this universal consciousness. It's, it's, it's not personally identified. It has no finite experience. Why the hell would it jump into a finite experience as a human being so that it can suffer and go through all these experiences just to die? Well, you're walking the green mile the moment you take a breath. Right. Right. We all on some level could probably admit this. Most of us are not nearly um, connected enough to that reality so that it's transformative, but that's, that's the case. So why would, why would that universal being put itself on the cross of suffering? What was the point of that? Is it to awaken back to its universal being? It already has that. Why the hell would it go through the story of life just to reawaken back to its universal being? I don't personally think that is the purpose of humanity. My thinking lies in the unification of humanity to then be in a a more advanced, in a more advanced state. Really. It seems like the purpose of, is that not an ego judgment? It's hard to advanced from what from conflict strife, racism, things like that. Things that separate us and keep us from acknowledging each other's inner divinity. All right. Perfect. Okay. If there's only one thing that actually is right. This consciousness, there's only one thing that actually is from what does it need to awaken? From what does it need to change? What's the problem? Yeah, it's it's the very true. I mean, it is very a lot of spiritual teachers will say everything is perfect. It's going exactly how it should be and and everything there there really is like you said nothing to awaken from. But it does seem like on one layer, just like one layer, we do need to heal each other and, and get to a place where we're healed at the very least. So we're describing a need here. Yes. We're describing a need. Definitely. And, okay, so if you tell that need to, let's say you describe a racist, right? I would suggest there's actually no such thing as a racist. 
I'm not saying racism doesn't exist. I'm not say, saying people who believe that they hate other people doesn't exist. I'm saying that nobody is a racist. They're human beings. We're not labels. Right? Right. And when we start to communicate with each other, absent the labels, that is the healing. The labels are just a way of shaming people, of yes. manipulating. Right. So just being honest will lead us like with our language and with ourselves will lead us to what you're describing. I and mean, we don't even have to call that spiritual. We don't have to ever say that it's spiritual. It's just being totally honest to the reality that you are not a label. And starting to see and live through that honesty. And that, and also being honest that whenever I label you or myself, what I'm actually doing is manipulating. I'm labeling you to try and hurt you so that you will do what I want you to do. I'm labeling myself, I'm lazy, in hopes that somehow that's going to motivate me to actually take action. But what you find is, have you ever called someone a racist and they stopped being a racist as a result? Ha, no, never. <laughs> it's a completely useless strategy. Yes. And maybe the goal isn't actually to stop racism. People are doing this. Maybe the goal is that they want to feel morally superior. There is that intention for some people too, but for other people though, it's just to kind of help shift the thinking. Maybe not even really just label. It won't work. It won't work. I mean, you can see that. Yeah. If someone calls you, you know, you lazy bastard, that's not going to make you, that's not going to endear you to them. It's not going to endear you to them. Right. So, I mean, I'm not really making a political statement. Here. Sure, sure. No, no, I understand. I'm actually talking about the way the ego projects its own insecurity onto other people. Yes. And so if we want to stop racism, stop labeling people. And more importantly, stop labeling yourself. Because you cannot love yourself so long as you're manipulating yourself. And the reason you manipulate yourself is because you don't trust yourself. That's why you manipulate yourself. Right. You're trying to create like uh, patterns in order to circumvent what you think you, where you might fail. Yes. You're trying, you're trying to create a profound inner pressure that will cause you to move in what you think is going to be a healthy direction. When actually what you're doing is you're just kicking someone while they're down. <laughs> Yourself in that situation. Yourself in that case. It's not love. And, and what's really suffering is the body. The body is suffering. Every time we label ourselves, the body goes, experiences anxiety. The systems are thrown off. It's hampering your health. Right. Right. And we're not, because we're so disconnected, like our, our awareness is up in our heads. We're so disconnected and unaware of the subconscious and the body that we often don't detect these things. And so the answer is trust, less moral judgment more discernment, more care with our language. Soften the beliefs, soften the labels. This process isn't complex. It's actually rather simple. It's stripping everything down. It's, it's, it's an unfolding, an unbinding, a stripping away, a simplification. And that allows for the mind to settle into the total intelligence of the body. And then... Strangely, what happens is you start to have such a profound clarity that, that starts to cut through or clarify areas of past teachings that have gone astray over the years, that have just been passed on teacher to student, like rotely, 
but that aren't accurate. And many of these teachings have been translated, and so they're 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 distorted anyway as a result of translated or brought into a new culture. And just you know, I I find this also also <laughs> very regular. I mean, on a personal level, my students will take something I said and I'll hear them talking about it, and they completely distort it. I mean, it's instant because as soon as you say a word, you don't own it anymore. Right. It's now it, taken on it, by their body. Somebody else's filters. Yes. And they've turned it. And now they think you said this certain thing, but actually their mind created what, what they think you said. Now you might record what I actually said. How is it possible that you heard something completely different? Because you're doing something completely different. Your explanation of what I said is completely different. How'd that happen? That's a great moment of awakening. Yes. To realize that you don't hear reality. Your mind is constantly painting reality and distorting it and believing that distortion to be true and then projecting anger out or love out or whatever emotion out onto the world because it gave you faulty information or said something you don't like. Right. When actually your brain created it. Now, some people actually say things that are not helpful or hurtful, right? Calling each other names. And you may actually accurately perceive that. But a lot of these things are just miscommunication. And, 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 and the individual's distrust for their own body and so many inner divisions that are these biases that are filtering information in ways that don't reflect reality, maybe at all. And then we're acting our own beliefs, which have nothing to do with the other person. And it's not fair. It's not honest. And that is the state of the world we're in right now. I know it's very powerful. All the things you said are really powerful. And that's what I was thinking. Actually, you said that it just seems like, yes, that is the state of the world right now. What you're saying is we can fix that with communication. Miscommunication communication starts first with communion with your own body. Right. That's where It all starts first with communion and trust and respect, love, respect, acceptance, appreciation for your own body as if it were profoundly intelligent but you've just not earned the right to hear its intelligence yet. And then from there, as you develop, that's when the, the global healing begins. It, it starts to spread because people around you start to take it. You know, there's this interesting thing, and I've noticed this again and again. As the individual becomes more embodied and more fully um, present and authentic, there's this sort of a breath of fresh air to be around them if the, for other people who are also interested in that. Now, an individual like that can be quite terrifying to someone who really doesn't want to see their shadow. There's, there's plenty of people that don't like what I'm doing. <laughs> no, no, no doubt about that, right? I mean, it's kind of like talking to someone who has awareness that I'm talking about. It's like having a big spotlight shine on you all the time. They're going to see right through your bullshit. Yes. You're going to see things about you that you yourself are completely unaware of at a glance. It's very hard to, um, to deceive them with regard to the nature of your being and your shadow. So if you don't want to address your shadow, the last thing you want to do is stand in that spotlight. Right. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of prophets in the past were, were killed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason for that, right? Yes. 
the real reason for that. And I'm not even saying that that's wrong. I'm just, I'm just describing what's happening. Yeah. They were exposing people to that spotlight. Like you're, and they were radiating that and that made everyone uncomfortable collectively, a right. collective uncomfort. It's, it's a giant spotlight on hypocrisy. It really is. Right. And, and corruption, inner corruption, as well as societal corruption, all of it. The key point here is that what I'm describing here is not religion. It's not ideology. It's not philosophy. All those things are developed through the mind with a closed ego, looking for formulas to solve problems. This realization or revelation is a result of trusting the body. And the body's intelligence is what is communicating, not the egoic self. This isn't philosophy. And as soon as we say someone should do this, we're now creating another moral judgment system because if they don't do it, they're wrong. Right. And now we're labeling them again. Or they will label, usually they're labeling themselves, I should do this, or you're expecting me to do this, and I'm not doing it, so I'm not living up to your standards. Now there starts to be distrust again. No, this is a breath of fresh air. Let's keep it a breath of fresh air. It's an invitation for people who are interested to open up to their fundamental intelligence. That's all it is. And if it becomes anything other than that, it's a distortion. It's a corruption. It's unhelpful. And it's not authentic. It's another form of manipulation. Humans are so prone to doing that. You know, we, we do it automatically and it's just kind of based on the programming that we received as children, our parents programming, generational programming, you could say, but it's it's able to be transcended. You would say that that's right. It is. And we can't, you can can never force somebody to do this. This is done through what I find is that people who tend to awaken this way have suffered to such a degree that they just realize I can't do this anymore. And there's something wrong with the way I'm perceiving myself and life. And I want to find out what it is. And that is usually what leads them to do this. And they stop deferring or believing all the stories of society and authorities. Right. It's not that they're going to close off from teachers like, my teacher, Osakshi Zen, is my teacher. He passed away, but he will always be um, embraced in my arms as my teacher because he helped to awaken my body through the tremendous amount of time and, in a sense, faith that he had in my vision to allow for this. If it weren't for, for, for the training I had with him, nothing of what I'm doing now could be, right? But I never deferred to what he said. I listened. I tried out what he said. I would store it in the back of my mind and see if it works. And then I would try to see if I could find something that worked even better. Yes. My hope for my students or anybody reads any of my books, they take it beyond where I took it. Like, that'd be cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do want to tell people, Richard, we've had an incredible interview. I'm just like, wow, this has been so powerful, but we're running out of time. So I do want to tell people where to find you to continue this information. So right off the bat, you can go to his website, which is richardlhate.com. And I'm going to spell that for you. So Richard, R-I-C-H-A-R-D, the letter L, Richard L, and then hate is spelled H. A I 
G-H-T. So it's richardalhate.com. You can start there. He has courses. He has a YouTube channel, Awaken with Richard L. Hate. You can find that. But his books, The Genesis Code, The Warrior's Meditation, Unshakable Awareness, The Psychedelic Path, The Unbound Soul. Listen to these incredible titles. Inspirience, not experience. We talked about that so much. Inspirience. I have a feeling that book talks about some of the points that Richard brought to the table today. And it's, it's just powerful to have you. I just want to thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. You know, of course, we're going to have you back at some point. It seemed like we were just really scratching the surface of these really profound points. And it's very unique and original. A lot of the things that you've said, I don't really hear a lot in other places. And I read quite a bit. I have a lot of guests in various sectors. And, and there's a lot of really unique original thinking that's coming from you. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Jake. <laughs> well, before we go, uh, is there anything else you'd like to uh, share with our audience? Is there any point you'd like to leave our audience with before we depart this interview? I would invite you to start paying attention to your body a bit yes. more. Love, respect, acceptance, and appreciation. Why not? why not people that's obviously true we're all in this together including our bodies and the animals and the plants our beautiful universe the solar system we're all in this together i just want to say that the reason we talked about the genesis code and kind of touched on it but then really didn't dive into it too much is because we want you to check out the book because the book itself is a transformational process. You start reading it 30%, 40% in, you start to unlock new levels of knowledge. Then you start to tap into the inner knowledge of the Genesis code. So please go check that book out. And these courses, if you're interested in what we're talking about, the warrior's meditation is a 25 day course that touches on a lot of the concepts that we talked about today and expands on it dramatically 25 days and there's total embodiment meditation courses and personal mentoring so if you're feeling this people if you're feeling this please go check those things out richard thank you so much for being here please hold through the outro music and everyone Whoa, I have to like take a couple of weeks and process everything I learned today. I have a feeling you will as well. And we will see you next week. Midnight on Earth. 